following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This series is supported by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck & Co. Inc., Pfizer Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme. Good evening, my name is Jay Raman, and I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another one of our episodes in the AUA Expert Exchange podcast series, Discussions in Genital Urinary Cancer. Today's show title specifically is Advanced Kidney Cancer, A Guide to Targeted Agents and Immunotherapies. And joining me today are two real thought leaders in the field, Dr. Monica Joshi and Dr. Brian Shook. Dr. Joshi is an associate professor of medical oncology at the Penn State Cancer Institute in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and she's a medical director for the clinical trials, and her research interest is in clinical trial development for urologic malignancies. Uh, Dr. Brian Shook is associate professor of urology at UCLA. He's the director of the kidney cancer program and the Alvin and Carey Mind Heart Endowed Chair in Kidney Cancer Research. Uh, he's an accomplished surgeon through a variety of different techniques and has done an enormous amount with uh, clinical and translational research, particularly with kidney cancer. So first of all, uh, Monica and Brian, thank you so much uh, again for joining. Um, it's really our pleasure to be able to have you and, and sort of pick your brain for the next 30 minutes. Thank nice you. Thank you, Jay, for inviting us and we look forward to uh, our discussion. So uh, for today's episode, we have a few um, learning objectives. One is to uh, discuss current targeted and immunotherapy options for the treatment of uh, kidney cancer. Um, talk about some of the completed and accruing trials that are defining uh, sort of the paradigms of use for immunotherapy in this disease state. Um, best practices for patient selection, as well as treatment options, as well as talking about uh, treatment plans, sequencing of therapy, and uh, recognition and management of adverse events. So um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll sort of kick it off with both of you um, and, and sort of have you maybe bring us up to speed as listeners on where we are with regards to initial management of kidney cancer. And, and I guess, you know, what I would say first and foremost is, you know, obviously when, when I was certainly going through training and whatnot, uh, the paradigm was, um, nephrectomy upfront. So somebody had metastatic kidney cancer, it was nephrectomy upfront, and then thereafter management with any systemic therapies. Um, maybe first, I don't know, maybe I'll start with Brian. Talk, talk to us a little bit about, you know, what was sort of the data? Why, why did we practice that way? And, and then maybe uh, I'll turn to Monica on, you know, what is some of the newer data that's out there that perhaps is causing us to, to maybe change our approach or at least modify our approach? Great, Jay. So uh, I will tell you that historically, the primary tumor never responded to really systemic therapy in the interferon and IL-2 era. So it was setting the paradigm for patients to have their tumor debulk 
it'd be about two to three percent of patients would have a systemic regression. Uh, you would also improve uh, their symptoms. Uh, and uh, there were two randomized trials showing a survival benefit with uh, debulking up front. So for about uh, 20 years in the modern era, after 2001, the Flanagan paper, there's a McKish paper, we kind of set the, a, a tone that most patients should have upfront nephrectomy. However, there were patients who did very poorly with that approach when they would have rapid progression and they wouldn't get systemic therapy. And, and Brian, just ballpark wise, you know, when we look at some of the older data, just give the listeners a sense of, you know, what was that, what was that survival benefit that we were seeing when, when you looked at sort of upfront debulking of the primary tumor? So again, it, it, it depends on the patients that are selected for, but in those trials, we were talking about uh, the patients who did not have surgery had about a seven to eight month uh, median overall survival. And those who had surgery had about a 13 to 14 month. And it's important to put that in context because you'll see some of our newer trials actually have similar outcomes because they're probably much sicker patients than included in that trial. So Monica, um, maybe talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, the Carmina trial perhaps and, and, and maybe how that has uh, really resulted in us maybe rethinking a little bit about how to manage metastatic kidney cancer patients right out of the gate. Yeah, thank you um, for that uh, question. So it's uh, it's really a very challenging you know era. So when these trials, um, what Brian talked about, the SWOG or the EORTC studies, they were done way back in the era of uh, interferon, and now. Um, when we reached the targeted era, I think that's when Carmina was designed. So Carmina was designed uh, to see uh, a non-inferiority. If we do an upfront nephrectomy uh, followed by the TKI versus um, uh, still suitant upfront. And, and it was 450 patients and they uh, randomized them. And, and unfortunately, it did not show the similar benefit. Uh, for uh, XYZ reasons, but the uh, but the overall survival was about 18.4 months in Sutent and about 13 and a half or close to 14 months um, in those who got nephrectomy. Uh, so it was considered non non inferior. Um, it's important to note that I think 38 patients in the experiment in the standard of care, like uh, upfront Sutenam, did get nephrectomy. Uh, so that was one of the first uh, prospective um, phase three studies in the era of TKI that suggested that upfront nephrectomy perhaps is not favorable. It didn't really answer the question about delayed nephrectomy. That's what the Sir Time study um, was looking into. And unfortunately, it wasn't, it didn't accrue well, but it did show that perhaps delayed nephrectomy could be option. And that's something that could be studied. Um, so, um, you know, here we are. But now the era of TKI has changed to immunotherapy. Right. So um, we're not still clear as what to do. But as a standard of care, currently, I think treatment is advised unless uh, we super select these patients. Sure. Uh, and Brian, maybe your thoughts on, on one of the points that Monica made, which is, sure, the, the, the landscape is changing, TKIs, and we're going to talk a little bit about immunotherapies. But maybe give us a sense in, in your practice and the practice at UCLA, um, are you doing, uh, for those patients that perhaps are responders to systemic therapy, um, are you doing delayed nephrectomies? Are you sort of doing consolidative surgery on the primary? Um, how often is that actually occurring? So I will say the era of upfront surgery is not dead for patients who have bad symptoms. 
Uh, it's a great palliative approach and some patients are gonna get into trouble while they're on systemic therapy. And we also have a lot of patients with very small volume disease, which you would consider watching, and those are great patients for upfront cytoreductive uh, nephrectomy. Uh, so uh, it, I would say maybe that's about 10 to 20% of our patients. Um, now, we do a lot of consolidative um, uh, nephrectomies here because we have a lot of patients who've had very good, deep systemic responses. Uh, we have a lot of patients where when, you know, good 60 to 80% or more of the disease is in the primary, you know, after about four to, you know, eight month range, um, we have gone and picked off the primary tumor. And it's usually in the era of, you know, now we, um, if we have oligometastatic disease, we also try to pick off the metastasis too with like ablation or SBRT. So we are doing it. Um, I would say that we haven't seen many complete responses in the primary tumor pathologically. Um, again, the PROBE trial, which is uh, led by uh, Alka Veshkampayan and Hyung Kim Juswag, I think will hopefully answer that question. Uh, but there are only about 90, 90 patients in on a about three or 400 patient trial so far. So let, let's spend a little bit of time talking about um, upfront systemic therapy uh, for metastatic kidney cancer. And, and maybe we'll start off with um, clear cell histology, because I think, you know, proportionally that that's going to be the majority of the patients that, uh, that we end up seeing in clinical practice. Um, maybe either Monica or, or Brian. So, so where are we with regards to systemic therapy? Um, Monica, you alluded to the fact that obviously, you know, we've evolved very much from the, the TKI, uh, based therapies. Um, talk about, you know, where we've evolved to, uh, and also the concept of, you know, single agent versus combination therapies. So, yeah. So, um, you know, in the present era, I think, uh, people are looking into the researchers. Uh, what we have established is, is uh, definitely for uh, kidney cancer, the world is moving towards doublet. So getting the best of both sides, the TKIs, as well as the immunotherapy in particular, we talk about immunotherapy, the checkpoint inhibitors. Um, and um, so several of these are already approved based on the, the phase three data. So we have Exitinib and Pembro that got FDA approval in 2019. Um, and, and it clearly showed a response rate of about 59%. It was compared to Sutin, which was 36%. And similarly, since then, we've had Cabo, uh, Ipi, sorry, Ipi and Nevo that got, had gotten approval as well in this. And then we have Cabozatinib and Nivolumab that was, um, I think, approved back in January of last year. And then we have the clear um, study data, that's the Lenvima and Pembrolizumab. And those two combinations, actually, the particularly the Lenvima and Pembro combination, as reported, is showing uh, really response rate around 71% and clear survival benefit. Um, so apart from the double uh, immunotherapy, this uh, ipilimumab and nivolumab that had shown about 42% or uh, response rates, all of them are like above 50%. Um, and uh, the Ipi and Nevo combination is currently uh, recommended or used mostly for intermediate and poor risk, whereas all of these can be used for um, 
all three risks, good, intermediate, and poor. Uh, we also um, had the recent data reported from the COSMIC uh, study. That was the triplet study for NEVO, IP, uh, and CABO. Um, I think, you know, the benefit comes with the price, actually, that you have more side effects. Mm -hmm. So um, more and more trials that are trying to do, we have, um, you know, even pedigree, one of the uh, trials uh, led by us, uh, Tian Zhang's group, and um, what they are uh, planning to do is to do a doublet upfront and then define the sequence. So um, at this present time, I think the world, if if a patient comes to us, we do evaluate. Um, is single agent dead? I, I don't think so. There are some patients who would benefit, so it's not clearly gone off or who may not be a suitable candidate. Um, so yes, so doublet is, uh, is the option at present. And uh, Brian, maybe maybe to sort of dovetail on this, so so clearly Monica has highlighted that uh, combination therapy is increasingly moved, you know, to, to the forefront of how these patients are treated up front. And one of the points that she made, and maybe just educate our listeners, is a little bit on risk, right? Assigning risk and and the different risk strata. Just broadly, can you just you know explain to our listeners? Um, the concept of risk when looking at metastatic kidney cancer and how that risk may impact uh, your decision making, the different risk groups with what and maybe some of the different criterion that are out there um, for assigning risk. Yeah, so uh, I will tell you that in prior eras, obviously, there was a, uh, a wide range of outcomes. I think a lot of our patients today are doing better than ever. Uh, the median survival today for uh, up, um, a new diagnosis of metastatic kidney cancer is almost four years, which is remarkable. Uh, but um, in trying to define risk, the initial series uh, from Mozart and colleagues at Sloan Kettering had a criteria of, um, it's called the Mozart criteria. Uh, and then later this um, was updated to um, uh, another one in the uh, more modern targeted therapy era called the IMDC. And they look at things looking at, you know, time to treatment, uh, greater less than a year, Karnofsky performance status of 80 or greater, LDH, calcium, hemoglobin. Uh, in the IMDC, we're also looking at things like neutrophils and platelets. Uh, but basically, if you have no prognostic um, high risk, uh, you're considered a low risk group. Pretty much anyone with a new diagnosis is probably going to get treated. So pretty much all new diagnosis of kidney cancer, you're going to at least have that uh, time to treatment of uh, less than a year. So they're automatically in that intermediate group, which is going to be one or two prognostic factors. And then the poorest group are really going to be three or more. I would say that in the current era where you have such good outcomes with immunotherapy, we're really not sure how these will uh, perform. Will they perform as well? Um, it's kind of unclear. But uh, as Monica said, we have so many different options in the first line. Uh, pretty much NCCN includes, you know, all these as options. The only thing which is not included for the, the favorable risk group is really that ipinevo. That doesn't mean patients will do well with that. The trial was focused on the intermediate and poor risk group. There's a small subset of patients with good risk or favorable risk. Uh, and um, the small patient cohort did favor SUTEN. Uh, and that's potentially because they're more VEGF driven. But uh, there's really no biomarkers uh, to determine who's going to do best. But we try to, again, risk stratify patients in that intermediate or poor or favorable risk, which may be a little less relevant now in this era because patients do you know, sometimes well regardless. Sure. So so I guess, you know, the, the very practical question I would ask you both is, 
Monica highlighted, and you mentioned as well, Brian, that if you look at the NCCN guidelines, there's a number of different options that are available, right? So there's a number of different combination therapies, that all of which would be reasonable options in the first line setting. So is this a little bit dependent on individual institutions and practice patterns with regards to which combination um, that we use? I mean, I, how does this sort of practically play out um, in, in, in practices? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I would tell you, you know, the, um, uh, you know, when you break patients down, uh, the treatment standard to IO, IO, or IO, TKI, um, you know, the median time to response does look a little quicker with a VEGF TKI. It's not that the IO, IO combination therapy is going to take like a year or two. I mean, the median time to response is, you know, three to four months. But in the trials with the TKI, the median time to response is about, you know, 1.8 or two months, depending on the, the, the series. So if you have a patient who's really sick who needs to have a response, a lot of people favor a TKI-based uh, regimen. Yeah, I would, I would second uh, what Brian said. I think when they come to a practice, you have to determine what, like whether they will even have enough time to evaluate the response, right? So don't forget the pseudo progression that we uh, talk about. So we have to have a confirmatory scan. So if somebody comes uh, with poor risk features or um, you wanna give them the benefit of both worlds, the TKI as well as the immunotherapy, um, but uh, it's also important to uh, note that the best benefit for the immunotherapy doublet is actually in the upfront setting because there are various other trials that have been drawn, done in um, second line or third line. And we don't see so much of CRs in there, whereas the, the complete responders uh, reported in the initial studies about 10 to 11%. So I think that gives you that advantage. But uh, at this time, we don't know other than knowing these are the therapies and most people would lean towards TKI and IO. We don't know which TKI and IO is better um, because it hasn't been compared. So I think it's uh, whatever people are comfortable with uh, and can manage the toxicities. I think that's uh, what you should choose. Yeah, I would say that comparing across trials is very challenging. You say, oh, look at the clear trial. There's a 71% response rate, but there's a clear difference in who's included on these trials, mm -hmm. differences in the intermediate or poor or favorable risk group. So it's really hard. I'd say that a lot of people just find the regimen they're comfortable with. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, a lot of times for some drugs, they need to be dose reduced. So uh, I'd say a lot of my colleagues just find the regimen they feel comfortable with and then go with it. And I would also add to that, if there is a clinical trial that's going on evaluating, I would definitely discuss, uh, encourage uh, the listeners and the, uh, and the physicians to discuss with the patients because it's, it adds an extra layer to what the standard of care is available. So um, if the patient is um, a right fit for the trial, then definitely uh, discuss that with them. And, and then the triplets, obviously there's triplets in trials and then the triplet, you know, that was just uh, shown uh, to have improvement, Ipinevo Cabo versus Ipinevo. I would say that, you know, everyone expected there to be improvement in the, this progression-free survival. But uh, I think a lot of people were disappointed, disappointed that there wasn't like a much higher rate of a complete response. If patients are going to have much more toxicity, you want it to be for something more than just an extra month or two of mm -hmm. uh, delayed progression. You want to see increasing maybe complete responses. So that, you know, that the overall survival data in that trial are going to obviously take a long time. It's very intimidating to do a first line trial now because it might take five, six, seven years to see a, a, a difference. 
So what about um, duration? How, how long do you treat? So let's say you have a patient who has a very good response on therapy. What What is the endpoint? Um, when do you stop? When do you give them a challenge off of therapy? I mean, it, maybe there's no good answer to this, but um, what do you do with these patients who've had a great response? And, and uh, obviously we're going to talk in a minute about toxicities, but all of these therapies have some inherent toxicities. Um, but what do you, what, what's sort of your thought process on duration of treatment for, for these patients? So, I mean, that's an excellent question. I think currently, if you look at most of the trials, I think they're at least treated for two years. Um, but the, you know, the jury is out. We do not know how long to treat. Um, I know what I do in my current practices. Um, and I have a few patients who did so well that I ended up stopping the treatment and said, let's watch. I even, um, I think uh, we opted for one of the patients I, I recall had excellent response and there was this, uh, you know, lesion left and we opted for the primary to be removed. There was no cancer found. Um, so I think those who respond or who have complete responses, they do really well if you stop. Uh, those who have partial responses or, or st stable disease, I would not recommend to stop. I, and sometimes you can tailor down the treatment. So if it's an IO and a TKI combination, then you could use, uh, you know, if they're having a one toxicity versus the other, you could uh, continue one and stop the other. Uh, but yes, I think a lot of others, um, other oncologists uh, around the country uh, would also perhaps consider stopping in, in uh, those with complete responders after a certain duration of time. Minus. So I think we... we yeah, I think we've learned clearly this is different than the TKI era. So in the TKI era, there's you know one one particular paper from Laurent Salvages where they you know they stopped Sutent, even the patients who had like you know CRs, and over 50% of them you know ended up having you know recurrences. Uh, we don't know if this is going to be like IL2 where we have patients who are alive 15, 20 years later who've had a complete response. I'll just say that you know our our colleagues, a lot of colleagues. Uh, the oncology fields are historically melanoma and renal docs. Uh, I'd say this is probably not as um, the, the CRs might in, the, in talking to the people, you know, like the Mike Adkins, the Mario Snowles who treat melanoma, they've been treating with these agents for a lot longer than the in the kidney cancer GU space. Uh, they do see that maybe the CRs are maybe a little less durable in the melanomas, but there are patients who are able to stop therapy and only time will tell if they're really you know, long-term, uh, long-term remission. So I think Monica alluded to this a little bit earlier, but let, let's talk a little bit about um, toxicities of, of therapy and toxicities of treatment. And, you know, I think this is important because I would say, you know, in our practice, for example, our urology group doesn't really give any of these therapies, but we certainly share a lot of patients. So I feel like what you might end up seeing in clinical practices common patients who may have some AEs and therefore when they call into the hospital or they reach somebody, these might be the, the, the conversations that occur. So maybe let's start first with maybe the checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapy. What are, what are some of the common AEs and side effects that, that patients experience and, and how do we manage them? And then we'll talk about maybe the TKIs. Yeah, so the checkpoint inhibitors, because it's uh, boosting your immunity, right, so to fight against the, the cancer, um, and, and the body itself has the balance between your immunity. Um, so some of these, uh, 
you know, autoimmune-like uh, symptoms could occur uh, because uh, the uh, suppression is needed. Uh, but when the when we give checkpoint inhibitors, I say um, majority of these patients, um, the good news is they can tolerate it well. They can have a healthy you know, uh, quality of life and, and continue doing what they are. Uh, fatigue is one of the other com one of the common symptoms that patients would report. Um, if you go system wise, I think um, these patients can really have um, adverse events or side effects related to any of the systems. So, can develop rash, um, diarrhea, like the immune related colitis. They can have um, arthritis. Uh, you know, uh, those are sort of the most common hepatitis, autoimmune hepatitis or um, what we say immune-related nephritis uh, can occur. Uh, effect on the nervous system is less than 1%. Effect on any other cardiology or myocarditis um, type uh, is, is less than 1%. Um, and we also see a lot, I think I see a lot of patients probably uh, who have hormonal imbalance like uh, thyroid disorders or mostly hypothyroidism than the hyper. And uh, we also see adrenal insufficiency. Um, a lot of these things could be kind of managed uh, carefully. Um, so educating these patients when you start the treatment, telling them uh, what to do, how to report it, um, informing uh, their uh, treating physicians early on so they can help them manage. Um, and uh, this is where I think the clinical trial uh, data kind of um, helps us understand so if uh, we have to, as physicians, like grade something, so how severe the, the problem is, it's the grade one to grade four. And uh, if it's grade one, most of the things are managed very easily with conservatives. Say, for example, you have a rash, just applying like Triamcelone or a steroid cream could help. Um, or if, you know, it, or diarrhea, like Imodium, uh, those things could help. And, and guiding the patients to tell us hydration, drinking plenty of fluids could help prevent uh, increase in creatinine. Uh, watching out these urine protein, like if it's high, you can pick it up, start them with ACE inhibitor or ARB inhibitor, uh, ARBs that could help uh, decrease your urine proteinuria. Um, and uh, picking these thyroid disorders early on, you can actually supplement them. So patients don't even notice these side effects. Now the problem comes in when um, they develop like grade two or a grade three effect. And that's when I think the recommendation is to hold and, and treat them with steroids because we're increasing the immunity and steroids are the perfect uh, partner to decrease. Um, so you can uh, treat these patients with oral steroids, uh, let the toxicity come down to like mild or grade one. And then a lot of us would re-challenge them. Now it depends how soon the toxicity occurred, occurs and what is affecting like i mean you will probably be more eager to start somebody a re-challenge if they come down with their rash rather than like if they have a cardiac uh, associated um, because of the immunotherapy you'll be less than eager to to challenge them for uh, diarrhea it's a little bit um, uh, different you can start with steroids and let symptoms calm down and you can re-challenge. The ipilimumab or the CTLA-4 is, is uh, much more nastier. So I think none of us, at least I would not restart them on CTLA-4 if they have a grade two colitis. Uh, there are other medications like infliximab or vedolizumab that can be given if patients become steroid refractory. Um, so so yes, it's, um, it's like art of medicine. You see right. patients and treat them. Uh, Brian, what about the TK inhibitors? Um, yeah. what, what, what will we be seeing? What will patients talk to us about and, and how do we sort of manage the, the side effects of the TKIs? 
So I'm going to make a pitch to have us uh, have the uh, listeners look at our AUA update series, where there's a great pictorial. This is from last year. Uh, it's about kidney cancer, the nuts and bolts of systemic therapies, and they have a great pictorial view of each uh, organ system and each um, TKI versus PD-1 versus mTOR. Uh, I, I will say that, you know, again, uh, we're not really giving, you know, monotherapy TKIs, but if you were to pull out the TKI monotherapy, you know, again, uh, you know, 50 to 70% of patients are going to have some fatigue, you know, hypothyroidism is also very common, you know, people uh, with some of the older ones like serafinib, you know, um, you know, there's a much higher incidence of hand foot uh, syndrome, uh, which is more PDGF driven. Uh, but it's uh, fortunately a little bit less with the more cleaner agents. But the diarrhea can also be common. Uh, you know, a lot of patients also have a dysphonia. Their their voice changes when they're on therapy. Uh, and then, you know, it's not uncommon to have things like diarrhea. Uh, some patients, you know, with Cabo and Pazopinib, they can get some uh, hepatotoxicity. Um, but um, hypertension is also uh, an on-target effect. It's actually something which, uh, you know, is actually sometimes a good biomarker. Brian Rini used to say with axidinib, sometimes you would actually titrate up to make sure you actually got, you know, hypertension. It's a good biomarker that you're hitting the VEGF target. Uh, but again, you know, a, a lot of these, you know, monotherapy TKI is not really, you know, given. Um, and uh, it, it's just usually given in combination unless maybe the patient had a bad uh, side effect from the PD-1 and you really weren't comfortable giving it. So we, we talked a little bit ago about first-line therapy. So let, let's maybe now move to the second-line setting. So may, maybe I'd start with you, Brian. You know, when I say second-line setting, what, what does that mean? I mean, I, how do you define somebody that, that needs to pivot from first-line therapy to second-line therapy? And maybe then for both of you, what, what are sort of the second-line options that, that are available? Yeah. So, I mean, second line therapy means basically your first line of treatment has failed. Your patient is progressing um, or they couldn't tolerate the first initial choice of systemic therapy uh, and they need to try a new regimen. In, I would say most patients are able to get on a second line therapy, but there are some patients who just, just get, you know, one treatment and then they can't, you know, get additional therapy. In other countries, that's, I think, more common. I think there's much more supportive care here. So, you know, sometimes you want to shoot all your guns up front. But I think in the U.S., we have, you know, we consider this second line more, more salvage, and most patients are able to get it. The landscape is changing so much because all of our trials that we're looking at second line therapy, you know, the cabozantinib, the, um, you know, we had, had patients who were getting, you know, axidinib. Um, you know, these were agents that were tested really in the second line therapy. You know, how relevant is it when patients have received the PD-1 inhibitor uh, when in that era, when we were testing some of these drugs, uh, they didn't have those agents available. But um, the landscape is rapidly changing because there's a whole host of other trials that are going to be coming forward. But uh, we consider these uh, agents like capozantinib, lindatinib, everolimus. Nivolumab actually was first approved in the second line, you know, after failure of TKI. But again, the landscape has completely changed since a lot of these initial trials uh, uh, led to the approval in the second line space. So, <clears throat> sorry, um, I, I would agree with what Brian said. I think there's so much, um, so many options that if a patient tries, and it's it's unfair uh, to you know 
to have so many options in first line. So a lot of us would try whatever you didn't try in the first line as a as a next line. But it also depends upon um, you know what the patient is like. If they have an IO and a TKI, they have sort of a good response in some areas and not so good response of progression. Then could you consider changing to a different IO and TKI combination? Or if they have like a really you know, intolerance to immunotherapy or something, you can consider a second line. Um, or if they have a TKI issue, could you consider, you know, just going to single agent nivolumab? As uh, Brian po pointed, I think it has a 25% overall response rate in second line. So um, another um, agent that's on the horizon for the TKIs is, is, is the Tivazanib. So, uh, you know, I was recently approved. That's also a good option. It has a better tolerability. And it was really approved for like third, third line. So patients were, were uh, quite beaten up and treated. Um, but there are single agent TKIs like, uh, you know, still you have your Votrian alive, you have your Cabozantinib, Lenvadenib, uh, and Amrolema. So, uh, and, and anything you didn't try. So Lenvima and Pembro also have some, some data in second line uh, setting that could be used. And same for Cabonevo or Apianevo too. Although for the latter, I, I as I pointed out before, I think the best use of an IO doublet is in upfront setting. Um, and in the salvage setting, it's not as effective. So I, I would say that it is generally agreed upon. If you had Cabo Nevo, you were not going to use Cabo in the second line. If you had Len Pembro in the first line, you're not going to use Len Everlimus in the second line. So again, you'd mix it up. I'd also say that a lot of people who have what we call oligoprogression, where they have maybe a couple lesions that are growing, this is a great time to consider, you know, can you actually pick off a couple of those lesions and then continue the therapy? Mm -hmm. Because again, you don't want to burn all your, um, you know, all, all your uh, drugs. Uh, and if you can get more out of it for another maybe six months a year, you know, you might be able to treat that one or two, you know, growing lesions with a, a local uh, treatment option. And then um, I think just other thing to point out what Brian, Brian said is if you have an illegal progression and that area is not accessible, you know, if it's uh, for surgery and for most of the patients, um, you know, opting for a, for a radiation and SBRT approach because that uh, the radiation also has some synergy with the, with the IO. So whether uh, that could uh, improve uh, the response or, or maintain the patient on the same drug before changing it to next line because you don't want to exhaust your options. So in terms of exhausting options, I would say that that's one of the reasons why we like to use our you know, Nevo Ipi, you know, at UCLA, uh, because, you know, ipilimumab in the second line setting, there's been a, you know, a Hoosier oncology trial, there's the other type of trials where, you know, the, uh, what, a lot of patients after they receive, you know, Nevo, um, they're not able to get, you know, uh, ipilimumab, you know, once they progress and the response rate is not so great. So, you know, it seems to be better, you know, given up front. So in the, in the last sort of five or seven minutes or so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of pick your brains on maybe a few different topic areas. So the first one is um, hereditary kidney cancer and, and the role of genetic testing. So um, maybe just educate our audience on um, what, what are the indications for genetic testing and um, what is the percentage of time perhaps that we identify a genetic mutation and how does that impact our, our, our treatment options? So I, I will tell you that there's very poor consensus amongst the different, you know, panels, committees. We're fortunate that, you know, the NCCN does have a new, you know, at least two page um, listing of recommendations. 
but uh, Dr. Brodlowski, my good friend from Syracuse, we did lead a, uh, a consensus conference, you know, two years ago or three years ago, it's in cancer. And then we had an updated one where we had medical oncology, urology. I would say that a lot of the things are controversial, like age of onset um, at a certain age. Uh, but there was, you know, pretty good agreement, multifocality, you know, family history. If you have, you know, first degree relative, if you have two or more second degree relatives, if you have suspicious histology, like an FH deficient or an SDH deficient, you know, tumor, a hybrid oncocytic tumor, you know, those are ones um, that uh, should uh, receive further germline testing. Yeah, I, I would agree with what Brian said. I think NCCN puts a very nice, uh, you know, guideline. I think genetic testing has become important in this era because we're doing more and more tumor genomics. So we don't want to kind of miss on picking up these because as the treatment um, platform is um, changing, like especially uh, with the VHL uh, drug coming up, or um, you know other uh, other abnormalities that are being picked. So as patients are having these tumor NGS, sometimes they don't tell what's genetic, but it, you can get some idea about what uh, what could be. Um, but yes, I think uh, patients who have uh, multifocal tumors, or especially if they have first or second degree relatives with the RCC, um, or anybody in the family with any kind of a genetic abnormality, I think those are high on the list uh, to be tested. And, and again, the uh, histological appearance should also um, point towards that. We're not at the test everyone approach like pancreatic cancer, but that you know clearly there's therapeutic options with PARP inhibition or you know test you know. Um, uh, you know, a large number of patients who so were kind of selective now because really other than maybe um, the implications for family members or for maybe HLRCC and now VHL localized disease, uh, you know, we really don't have um, in effect treatment. So I think you've both mentioned a little bit, but talk to us a little bit about uh, Belzutifan and, and sort of how that's used for VHL uh, uh, VHL-related kidney cancers. What's the clinical scenario and what's sort of some of the data uh, underlying this new therapy? So uh, belzutifan is the HIF-2-alpha inhibitor, um, and um, it uh, the approval has come for the VHL-associated RCC, uh, especially when not candidates uh, for um uh, for surgery. Um, and in the cohort of 60, uh, I, I think 61 patients, they observed the overall uh, response rate of about 49%, but uh, more than 50% of the people had good response uh, at year one. So that kind of led to uh, the approval um, for this drug. Um, we haven't used it so often in our clinic, I, I would be frank. I mean, I'm looking for a patient whom we can um, give this. Um, there are studies going into uh, metastatic advanced RCC who have, um, you know, in trial of this as well. So we'll know more about this. But um, I don't know, Brian, if you guys have used uh, Bozudifax. Yeah, so, so you know, I run our VHL program and I comprehensively kind of manage a lot of these patients. We have about 100 patients at UCLA. Uh, and I will tell you that the drug is very well tolerated. I mean, it's very tolerated that, you know, I feel very comfortable giving it, you know, some endocrinologists give it, some neuro-oncologists neuro, neuro give it, medical oncologists give it. The side effect is about 10% of patients have grade three anemia, uh, where they potentially have to either have dose reduction. In the trial, they were giving patients, you know, uh, um, uh, EPO uh, agents, uh, but the FDA has said that's not a good idea 
so we give people transfusions. But the patients uh, also can have hypoxia. Uh, they are fortunately not very symptomatic, uh, but it is something we have them check their pulse ox. But the indication for this is very broad. It's a patient with a CNS, which means uh, usually brain or spine, pancreas or kidney tumor that needs treatment, but not urgently, meaning that they really haven't passed the, the, the surgical threshold. You know, if you have a CNS lesion that's causing cord compression, clearly you need surgery. If you have a tumor that's greater than three centimeters on that trial in the kidney, you went for surgery. Uh, the question is, can you actually treat beyond those classic principles? It's unclear. But I have about eight or nine patients on therapy right now, and these are patients who've had multiple operations, and they really want to avoid future treatments. And the trial is pretty clear that a lot of these patients had surgery, 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 and then they go on therapy, and they seem to have less need for surgery. And, and let, final question for both of you. So we, we spent a lot of time talking about clear cell histology. What about these patients, which albeit are, are less common, but those with non-clear cell histologies? How, how does the treatment approach um, change? So for the non-clear histology, I think, uh, you know, all these agents are also being tried in um, non-clear histology. I think one of the studies to, to point out is Monty Paul's study, uh, the SWOG uh, 1500 that used cabozantinib um, for um, these non-clear cell patients and had a response rate of, um, I, I think, 23%. So that is uh, also a choice. You have sutin. There are other combinational therapies like lenvima and avrolimus, uh, reviews. It's been tried in the phase two studies um, and have um, some uh, promising responses, as well as the Ipian nivolumab. Uh, the response rates are not as similar to the clear cell, but it has about 20% of response uh, mm -hmm. response in non-clear cells. So again, these choices still remain. Um, one um, caveat in the non-clear cell type is patients who have like a sarcomatoid histology or rhabdoid, they tend to respond very well to immune checkpoint inhibitor. That's uh, emerging as one of the biomarkers and, and some of the, the sarcomatoid uh, cohorts have shown better responses uh, with, the, with the IO doublet. The other um, thing to remember is your medullary cancer or collecting duct. I think those don't respond to your conventional TKIs and stuff. So I think something to think about chemotherapy. Um, I know MD Anderson has a number of trials Miles, uh, for these patients, um, but uh, they're, they're, they're very rare, but uh, that's, you know, the options are still open for non-clear cell. Yeah, I, I would put a plug in for, you know, again, cabozantinib did show uh, superiority versus sutent, but now there's a SWOG S2200 trial led by Ben Mon with Monty as well, uh, which is looking at Cabo versus Cabo Nevo. Again, uh, we would hope that immunotherapy helps improve PFS, but we just haven't uh, shown it. Um, and that's what the trial is focused on. And then for HLRCC, which is probably about 5% of our patients that have, have papillary, if they get sequenced and are found with a germline mutation, bevrolodinib is a very well-tolerated regimen. Uh, you know, while I was at the NCI treated it, you know, half the patients on that trial, uh, uh, the response rate is about 80% and the PFS is about 24 months median. Uh, so, you know, that if you do find someone has HLRCC, you open up a new therapeutic, you know, avenue for them with uh, the EGFR and, and, and the VEGF antibody. Great. Well, uh, Monica and Brian, I really want to thank you both so much. Uh, the, uh, I think you're very thoughtful, very, I think you covered a lot of ground. Uh, touched on a lot of different things, but I, I think you both uh, 
articulated in a really clear, cogent way. So I, I really want to thank you both for uh, joining us on uh, on this AUA uh, Office of Education podcast. Thank you very much for having us. We, we love dis- discussing this. Great. Thanks, Jay. Take care. Um, and thanks to our audience. For more information, please visit us at auanet.org slash university. I hope you both have a great day. Thank you.